0: Congressman Devin Nunes tackles corruption in Washington. Bill O'Reilly on the rise of socialism, and award-winning artist Josh Turner performs. That's Drake Orley in the Music City Connection, and I'm your announcer Keith Bilbrey. And now.
1: Welcome everybody, we're so happy to have you. We've got a great studio audience and an amazing show. Well, you know, immigrants have made America what it is, a welcoming homogenous nation where people of all colors and languages, cultures and religions come to live what we often call the American dream. Some of the greatest blessings of my life have been from people like a car service driver in California, He came here from Pakistan as a young man, came in his 30s with 400 bucks in his pocket and his infant daughter. He learned English, he worked hard at two jobs, saved his money, became a citizen, taught his daughter to love this country, and now he owns his own transportation company employing eight different drivers, and his daughter is an RN working in a pediatric hospital in California. Or there's the friend of mine who came here from Syria escaping the increasingly difficult environment there. Not only did he learn English, but he graduated from law school. Quite frankly, he knows a whole lot more about the U.S. Constitution than most of the law professors at Harvard Law. That's true. And when he found law unfulfilling, he opened a wonderful restaurant called Cafe Rocca right here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, where we tape our show. We featured him, in fact, on this show, and he's beloved for both is incredible healthy Middle Eastern food, and his gracious and infectious hospitality. There's another friend I've got in Little Rock. He's done work for me over the years. He came here from Mexico as a young man to look for a better life for his young children. He came legally with a green card, and like many others, he worked multiple jobs. Ended up owning his own business. Now he employs several people. I'll not forget the day that he received his coveted U.S. citizenship, and he couldn't wait till he could show me his US passport. He was so excited to be a citizen that he not only got the passport, he got the additional ID card for passport holders. Now he didn't need it. It was just one more way that he could carry with him a reminder that he was as much a citizen of this country as me or anyone else. You know, most of our ancestors, let's face it, they came to this country looking for a better life. Mine did back in the early 1800s. Reportedly, they were dumped out of debtor prisons in England and dropped off initially on the mosquito-infested swampy shores of Georgia before making their way westward toward Alabama, Arkansas, and even Texas. My dad used to say, Hey, son, don't look very far up the family tree. There's some stuff up there you don't need to see. Of course, I later found out the old man was right. But despite having no notable lineage of aristocracy, My people, for the most part, they did no hard work and a hard life, and over time they built homes and families and jobs. The media and the folks on the far left tend to say that President Trump is against immigrants and immigration, and that's simply not true. When he says the country is full, he's been clear that he's not talking about people who apply to come here legally, get a job, work hard, learn English, and raise their children to respect the country and the laws. What he's talking about are those who demand to come into the country, even if not at a legal point of entry, and then falsely claim asylum, expect free medical care, housing, education, and who have no intention of learning English and assimilating into America. Now, if the country from which some of these asylum seekers is so atrocious that they need to escape to America, Why in the heck do they come waving the flag of such an awful place and burn the flag of our nation that they claim is a racist nation? Look, I don't get that. I love it that America is a land of immigrants. We're mostly immigrants ourselves, just maybe some of our ancestors got here a little sooner. And we're always going to have room in this great country for people like that. But I agree with the president that if someone demands entrance, refuses to learn the language, and doesn't respect our laws or our flag, and then wants us to give them free food, housing, education, and health care, then I'd say, yep, we're out of room, and the country is full. (laughs) My next guest grew up on a farm in the breadbasket of Central California. His hard work and common sense led him to Washington in 2003, where he's been representing the 22nd district of California in Congress. Please welcome from San Luis Obispo, Congressman Devin Nunez. Congressman, uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, Easter weekend. I know it's a great time to be with your family, but I wanna get right to the heart of, you have been on the very precipice of investigating the uh, not just the russian collusion hoax uh, but all of the things associated with it tell me what is it that americans need to know that you've discovered in those investigations
2: i would say that the american people need to know this they need to know that this was two and a half years of investigative work by very few people that were trying to get to the truth about what really happened with russia did the trump campaign really collude with Vladimir Putin. So, after a couple months, and we weren't seeing any intelligence that led us to believe that there was any involvement between Trump and Vladimir Putin, you can imagine that we became very suspect. And then leaks began. So, leaks of highly sensitive classified information began to leak out. And, you know, they leaked and, and tried to go after a three star general that was the former head of the defense intelligence agency and somehow compare that the the head of our defense intelligence agency who had been retired just for a year was somehow now a Russian asset. So it, it got to the point of absurdity. And we kept asking, where's the evidence? Where's the collusion? Where's the Russians? And when they didn't have any after several months, that was when we all became very suspect. After about a year, we said, look, we don't see any collusion between the Trump campaign and Russians. But what we did find is we found collusion between the Democrats and the Russians.
1: If the Democrats spent $9 million between the DNC and the Hillary campaign, they created uh, a completely invented narrative uh, through the dossier that was uh, put together by a political operative. Mm -hmm. And that was used to surveil a presidential campaign I mean, that is a serious breach yeah. of civil liberties. What can you and other members of Congress do to say,
2: we're gonna to get to the bottom of this? The reason that our committee was created, ironically, was because of Watergate. And what happened in Watergate? The, our nation's spy capabilities were turned on onto the American people. After Watergate, the Select Committee on Intelligence in both the House of Representatives and the Senate was created. So we were here to basically stop and investigate all of this to ensure that the American people can trust our agencies. So we sent eight criminal referrals over. I believe that Attorney General Barr is a serious adult and I think he's going to investigate all of this.
1: When people like John Brennan and others who were in the previous administration, who had to have at least had some cursory knowledge of the surveillance. What, what do you think about that? And, and how do other members of the committee, including your
2: Democrat colleagues, how do, they, how do they even deal with that? Now remember, when they testified in front of our committee and we asked them, do you have any evidence of collusion? This was asked to Brennan, to Clapper, uh, to the former NSA director, you name it, we interviewed them. No one said they ever had one drop of evidence of collusion. So think about that. So once again, you have people out on the media Basically creating narratives, poisoning the minds of the American people to get them to believe that their president is somehow a Russian asset. It's wrong. It should have never been done. And that's why these people have to be held accountable.
1: I, I guess I just don't understand why guys like Adam Schiff, uh, who is now the chairman of that committee, um, Eric
2: Swalwell... And others continue to say, oh, there was collusion all right. They pretend, they make up things, like they say they have more than circumstantial evidence. Now, there's no such thing as as more than circumstantial evidence. That doesn't make sense. There's either circumstantial evidence or direct evidence. It's another example of how they play um, word games and create word puzzles to try to basically create narratives to put out there for the American people and the media to follow, and it's just false and fake. You
1: did something that I just stood up and applauded. You filed lawsuits against Twitter and McClatchy News. Tell us about those lawsuits.
2: Well, the Twitter lawsuit is is very important because about a year ago or so, they shadow banned me and other conservatives. So people, what that means is people could not see my tweets. So as people were attacking me, they could see other people's tweets attacking me. These were accusing me and others of federal and state crimes, criminal activity. So what we're saying is, look, Twitter, right now you have a special deal and we're challenging that special deal. You're no different uh, than any major news organization because you're editing the content. So you're responsible. If someone, if someone defames me or slanders or libels me, you're responsible. And so that's the, that's the Twitter case in a nutshell, Governor. On the, on the McClatchy case, they were one of the main operators that were taking opposition research from somewhere about Russia collusion. So these are the people who, who claim, McClatchy claimed that the NRA was somehow involved and they went and, and they dirtied up this lawyer who said this, this lawyer, uh, Cleta Mitchell, was somehow involved and she was the go-between between Russia uh, and the Trump campaign and the, and the National Rifle Association. They also were the famous ones who wrote the story, I think twice, about Cohen, which was with Trump President Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, he was in Prague, and he was somehow up to nefarious activities with Russians in Prague. So those are two kind of fake stories that we're trying to get to the bottom of, and that's why we're suing McClatchy. And at the same time, McClatchy was heavily involved in taking opposition research on me, which was fake opposition research. Sound familiar? Like, <laughs> a, like a Nunes dossier. And they continued to, to bring out stories about me, about how I was up to criminal activity.
1: I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you've had the courage to stand up and fight back. A lot of us have wanted somebody to say enough is enough. You have done just that. Congressman, thank you very much for joining us. And you can learn more about Representative Devin Nunes on his website, nunes.house.gov. Also follow him on social media, at Rep. Devin Nunez it's on your screen. All right, Keith, why don't you tell us how you and I can collude for a moment We can tell our wonderful audience what else is
0: on the show tonight. Columbine survivor Craig Scott, part two of our Bill O'Reilly interview, New York Times bestselling author Lee Strobel, and country music star Josh Turner performs on Huckabee.
1: Jesus reminded us to care for those less fortunate than us. He said, let us not love with word or with tongue, but with our deeds and truth to love our neighbors as ourselves. And there's no better place to make those words true than Samaritan's Purse. I hope you'll call their number or maybe visit their website. And as you're generous to those in need, I have confidence the Lord is gonna be gracious to you in return as you help Samaritan's Purse. Well, 20 years ago, the first mass shooting happened at a high school in our country. Our nation was wondering, how could this happen in our country? Craig Scott was there that day. He was in the school library where 10 students lost their lives, including two friends who were right next to him. His sister, Rachel Joy Scott, was the first to be killed and questioned about her faith in her last moments. Now Craig travels the country speaking in schools with his program, Value Up, sharing with students about the value of human life and lessons that he learned. Would you please welcome Craig Scott? Thank you, Craig. It's hard for me to believe it's been 20 years since the Columbine shooting. People on either side of you were murdered. I mean, you were right in the middle of two of your friends who were both killed. How many times have you said to yourself, why them, not me?
3: I I did experience some survivor's guilt, uh, uh, you know, wondering why uh, I had lived, but I realized uh, that God had a plan for me, had a, had a purpose for me, and he actually spoke to me in the library that day after my friends lost their lives. One of them was drug out from underneath a table and, 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 and called racial slurs before he lost his life. Mm. And, then, and then my other friend, Matt, and, um, and, then, and then right after that happened, I felt that I heard a voice speak to me and told me to get out of there and uh, let a group of students out And um, shortly after we got out of the library, the two shooters came back into the library, started exchanging gunfire with the police, and I realized that we got out of there just in time. You
1: saved lives that day, but the lives you couldn't save, one of them was your sister, the first one that was killed. And I think the story, um, which has been told, and I I even saw the the movie about Rachel, your beautiful sister, uh, was questioned about her faith just before they shot her. And she remained faithful in her testimony and
3: her witness, which I I just find remarkable. Tell us about your sister. Well, her last moments of her faith, uh, what a lot of people don't know is uh, a year to the day before she died, she talked about losing friends at school because she was living out her faith and she Mm -hmm. was living her beliefs. And she started off her journal and said, it's like I have a heavy heart and this burden upon my back. And I feel like crying and I don't know why. And she went on to talk about losing these friends for living in her faith, but she said, but you know what, it's all worth it to me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will, I will take it. I will not hide the light that God has put into me. Mm -hmm. A year to the day, exactly, her last moment was, uh, they knew her from class, the two shooters that shared a class with her, and they mocked her for her faith, saying, where is your God now? And her last moment was, one of them picked her up by her hair, and said, do you still believe in God? And she said, you know, I do. And he said, well, go be with him.
1: Craig, it's, it's an incredible, uh, just painful moment in American's history. Uh, you, there's now a Netflix uh, film called After Columbine, and they interview you. You talk about the experiences there.
3: Uh, th- that piece was actually a pure flicks piece called After Columbine, and I have dealt with some media over the years that have tried to exploit it, and even by focusing on the shooters of school shootings have given them a platform and even inspired some other school shootings to happen. I'm thankful though the, the news media has kind of learned over the years to uh, to not do that, that what you place your attention on you give power to. Yeah. But I, when I talk to students in schools, I talk to them about uh, choosing positive influences in their life and uh, the shooters at Columbine very focused on a lot of negative media and their, so media-saturated, and so I talked to them. Don't give these news stories. Don't give these all this negativity all your attention and time. If you want to be a person to, to inspire, be inspiring in this world, choose positive things to place your attention on.
1: You created an organization called Value Up. I want you to talk about what do you do, and how is that helping to get that message of hope to students across America today?
3: One of the biggest things that I'm seeing with, with teens across the country right now is uh, kids not feeling like they're valuable? Not understanding this inherent built-in value that's within them. That can't. It's not based on what they look like. It's not even based. It's not on based on what other people say of them, or even mistakes that they've made. It's a God-given built-in. It can't be taken away. And when kids understand their own value and believe that they have this value, they choose things that match that, and they treat others with value. And so. Uh, my partner Mike Donahue and High, Donahue and High uh, started this and we have uh, been speaking to kids, hurting kids. We, I have hundreds of kids come up to me after presentations, some that have suicidal thoughts, and we grab them by the shoulders and, and love on them and let them know you are incredibly valuable. And some of them don't believe it and we do our best to convince them of, uh, that they are. I share lessons that I learned from Columbine and, my healing process and how do you turn pain into purpose.
1: I'm grateful for what you're doing with the organization Value Up. So very honored to have you here and grateful that millions of students have heard your message. And my prayer is that millions more will hear the message of Craig Scott and the message of hope that you bring. Craig, thank you you very, very much for being here. (laughs) Surviving a mass shooting taught Craig the value of human life to value his own life and that of others. The process of healing taught him resiliency, forgiveness, and seeing through life's circumstances with faith. His message today is one that his sister shared in her journals, look hard enough, you'll always find a light. To learn more about Craig's inspiring program for schools, visit value-up.org. That's value-up.org. Keith, I'm going to hand the reins over to you so you can tell us What's coming up after the break?
0: Oh, what an inspiring story. Well, coming up, in case you missed it, is coming up next. Then meet the star of the movie, Unplanned. Later, Bill O'Reilly's back. Not to mention author Lee Strobel and country music's Josh Turner sings right here on Huckabee.
1: Well, from bridezillas to subway superheroes, we've got the news that'll make you smile on a little segment we like to call In Case You Missed It.
4: it.
1: An angry bride is asking for $30,000 from her bridesmaid to redo her wedding alleging that her hugely pregnant friend absolutely upstaged her on her wedding day with her electric personality and incredibly attractive husband. The bride unleashed her fury on Reddit as, quote, ignored bride, end quote, lamenting that her wedding day was planned for three full years. She went on to say that the friend and perpetrator, Anna, came to the wedding with a wedding glow of her own from her own recent marriage. She went on stating that, All anyone spoke about was Anna's pregnancy and her attractive husband. Now, the bride was so upset that she left halfway through her reception in tears. (laughs) Ignored Bride also wrote this on Reddit. I honestly feel like Anna owes me a wedding because she did all of this as revenge for me offending her years ago. Am I wrong? (sighs) Well, 740 comments and a new nickname, Bridezilla, later Sympathy was in pretty short supply for her. Here's some of the comments. It was probably just a few people asking about the baby and greatly exaggerated because she's jealous, said one commenter. Another one, if they did totally eclipse you on your wedding day just by being attractive, pregnant and dancing, you must be a really boring person. (laughs) All right, time for Dr. Mike to step in with a little advice. Ignored bride, it sounds like you might be a little obsessed over this whole thing. I mean, just because someone is happily married and expecting a child doesn't mean your wedding was ruined. You wanna know what a wedding fail is really like? Well, one bride's minister kept calling her groom Mark, but he kept calling him Mike. And when he said, Mike, do you take this woman as your bride, his brother who was named Mike shouted, I ain't marrying her. (laughs) So see, ignored bride, you had a better wedding than you realized. And by the way, I would tell you this, if you really didn't like what happened, I got a piece of advice for you, Elope. That way you can have your wedding all by yourself and all you have to deal with is a 70 year old clerk at the courthouse and you probably look better than her. So now you can be happy, okay? All right. Well, we all know riding the subway in New York is a tough experience. Countless people crammed into each car, all rushing to work or home. But when you can't even sit when there's space, well, it's time for a commuter hero to save the day. You see, there was one young teen who was doing a little man spreading over a bench. He was playing video games and refused to get his feet off the bench for three tired souls so they could sit down but one gentleman decided enough was enough and he put his superpowers to work by sitting on the young man. (laughs) Judging from the online photos posted by a commuter named Isabel, the kid was shocked by even the guardian traveling with the teen woke long enough to try and intervene. But you gotta love the guy who sat right on the kid and then refused to move. This adult seat warrior was celebrated on social media, fighting fire with fire. And hopefully the young man learned what happens when common courtesy is ignored. May there be a heroic commuter like this man on every bus and subway, using the mystical power of his backside to bring justice and seat space to the downtrodden commuters of the world. All for America and justice. And finally, being Easter weekend, we don't wanna miss out on sharing just a couple of those moments where we overreach just a little bit, trying to be festive or sincere in our holiday activities. Like this lady who decided she could combine candy peeps and sushi to create a new dish, Peepshe. <laughs> a colorful effort for sure. But look, I don't think it's gonna be showing up on any menus soon. And then there was this pastor seeking to drive home the idea of mortality And he used a coffin on stage, but then he took a tumble in his object (laughs) lesson of faith. Wow. And this is the kind of trouble our senior producer got into when he ran into the Easter Bunny at an egg hunt and told the Easter Bunny he didn't really exist. But my winner this weekend is the church that was doing a great job with their Easter play. Well, that is until the garden tomb got a little too hot to handle. as they say. them on! <laughs> you know what I love? The guy singing never missed a note. He just kept right on. The church is burning down. Some guy's hauling the tomb away in his hands. They bring fire extinguishers. He's still singing. That's what I call dedication. Well, just like the demolition expert with the short fuse, we've run out of time. But always remember, we read the news Sorry. Well, on March the 29th, one of the most significant films ever made was released into theaters. And despite pushback from Hollywood and virtually everyone on the left, it has quickly ascended to one of the top spots in the box office. More importantly, thousands of people have come to realize the value of human life in the womb just by seeing this film. Take a look at this clip from the movie, Unplanned.
5: Why are you telling me this? Because I understand better than anyone that inside that building, they don't offer solutions. They only offer abortions. And if you go through that door, you will not come out the same person because you can't. Because the truth is you can let them get rid of your baby, but they can't get rid of the memory of your baby. And neither can you, no matter how hard you try.
1: This is a powerful film. Unplanned is based on the conversion of former Planned Parenthood worker, Abby Johnson. It is my honor to have on as my guest, the actress who played Abby Johnson, Ashley Bratcher. <laughs> what an honor to have you here. There have been so many people who, after seeing this movie, it changed their view
6: mm-hmm.
1: of human life. And some of them are workers in abortion clinics who said, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that has to be rewarding and fulfilling to know that a movie has had that kind of impact on people's lives.
5: Yeah. yeah it's incredible. I mean, Abby's organization, and then there were none, has seen 500 clinic workers leave and join mm. her since she left Planned Parenthood. And personally for me, I've had three people reach out to me and say that pregnant women have now chosen life for their babies. They had intended to abort their babies, and because they had seen the movie, the trailer, or my testimony, had decided to give that child life.
1: (laughs) What a beautiful, beautiful testimony of the power of movies. Ashley, when you first read the script, did you read that and say, oh, boy, this is, I'm not sure I want to take on this role, or was it something you wanted to do?
5: When I first got the script, I didn't know who Abby was. I actually kind of blew off the audition. I didn't know anything about it. And when I looked her up and I heard her testimony for the first time, that was what rocked me to the core because I Mm -hmm. realized that I wasn't as pro-life as I thought I was because I thought I would never have an abortion. I'd never encourage someone else to have an abortion, but I didn't think I had a voice. And when I heard her describe what happened, it broke my heart, and I knew immediately that no matter what, God had prepared me for this moment, and I wanted to be a part of it.
1: There is a story about your mom's reaction to you being in the film that I want you to share.
5: Yeah, I was hesitant to tell her what the movie was about, because she had shared with me that when she was younger, she had had an abortion when she was in high school, and I didn't want her to think that this movie was about judgment or condemnation, or that I thought anything less of her, because that's not what this is about. This is about love and forgiveness, and I was really proud of Abby's story, So I started to explain it to her and as I did, she became very emotional and she broke down and started weeping through the phone. I could Mm -hmm. hardly understand what she was saying. And she said, Ashley, I need to tell you something that I've never told you before. I said, okay. She goes on to say, what you don't know is that when I was 19, I was in the clinic for the second time. They called my name back. I was on the table being examined by a very pregnant nurse I got sick to my stomach, and I realized I couldn't go through with it. And I got up, and I walked out, and I chose to have you. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: That.
1: What an affirmation.
5: Yeah. and Uh. I look back, and I think about (laughs) all the little funny things along the way. The very first page of the script is the scripture in Jeremiah that says, Before um, I knew you before I formed you in your Mm -hmm. mother's womb. And it was just such a moment that it really was all orchestrated for my life story to come up to this moment, to walk alongside of Abby and be able to tell the story. It just blew my mind that I never knew. I never knew that I had my own story. And here I was telling Abby's to the world.
1: You are living proof (laughs) that a decision for life can have a big impact on the world. I wonder how many Ashley Bratchers across America we haven't ever met because they didn't have a mother who got off the table. What a beautiful story. A great reminder that just like Esther, God has raised you up (laughs) for a time such as this. (laughs) Ashley, thank you so very, very much. (laughs) Let me say to our audience, whether or not you are pro-life, you should see this film. And if you are a believer, make sure you tell everyone you know about it. The movie is literally saving the lives of unborn babies. Unplanned is showing in thousands of theaters across the country. You can buy tickets online and learn all about the incredible movie at unplanned.com. Also, keep up with this amazing actress, Ashley Bratcher, on Twitter at underscore Ashley Bratcher. Keith Bilbrey has been waiting patiently to tell us what's next, so... I'm gonna turn it over to him.
0: Oh, can't wait, coming up, we'll be in the no-spin zone with Bill O'Reilly, and author Lee Strobel makes the case for Easter, then Josh Turner performs That's All the Life, here on Huckabee.
1: Welcome back, and our thanks to Trey Corley and the Music City Connection for the amazing music they bring to us all throughout our show. Give them a hand, everybody. Well, last week, we featured a great interview with Bill O'Reilly, and we covered the Post-Muller Report craziness on Capitol Hill. Now, in the second part of that interview, Bill and I delve into the great history deficit that's facing millennials and how it's helping turn our country in a shocking direction to socialism. Bill, it's been said that journalism is the first draft of history, but you have probably in this current generation done more to bring historical stories, the history uh, from across the world to the masses of America than anybody ever through the killing series of books. Millions of people have read and they've learned about World War II and they've learned about our presidents and they've learned about a host of things. I've always said, just I hope you never come up with a book, Killing Huckabee. But until you do, these have been phenomenal books, but it's brought a a level of history to the masses. But kids today in school, they're not getting history. They don't know what the United States is all about. Thus, we have an Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. I'm
7: worried about that. It is worrisome um, because the kids, number one, are not interested. Hmm. I used to teach high school history. I don't know whether you knew that. I knew that, yeah. And I would have to stand on my head. But once I got them hooked, started to tell the personal stories about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, what they were really like as people and Mm -hmm. what they went through and how they suffered, they just to pay attention, all right? And so the Killing series, most successful nonfiction book series in history. All right, 17 million copies in print. We've done, I think, that very good work, but still with the machines, the devices, the smartphones, the kids are just looking down all the time. Their necks are cricked, they can't even look up. Uh, and you ask them, all right, socialism. They don't know what socialism is. Yeah. You know, I wrote my my. Book that's out now is Killing the SS, The Hunt for the Worst War Criminals in History. If you go out on the street and you go, well, What about those SS guys in Germany? Don't they know. don't know. Don't know. And you're going, You know, that kind of evil, if you're not aware that it happened 50 years ago, mm-hmm. well, you know, 75 years ago, and it could happen again. Yeah. You need to be aware of these things. So it is, I think you're absolutely right. It's very concerning. That we live in a politically correct uh, era where history now has to be filtered into a, a this little homogenous blender and comes out, and the kids are like, you know, tell the truth. American history is unbelievably fascinating. I think so,
1: but a lot of people don't seem to. You, you mentioned socialism. Um, you know, what occurred to me that Alexandria. Ocasio-Cortez, was born a month after the Soviet collapse. Right, She's had no frame of reference. And many of the young uh, millennial generation, they have no frame. They didn't live through the Cold War. They never felt that there was a threat of communism. To them, socialism is a feel-good club, and they think of it as Scandinavia, which it is not. <laughs> Scandinavia. Um, but can we, can we salvage what they think about governments and the way that they're it formed. It can
7: only be done on an individual basis. You're not gonna be able to get the public school system to buy into uh, a commitment to educate American children as to the realities of the world. I took my son to Cuba, 13 years mm. old, all right? I said, we're going to Cuba, he goes, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, we're going, all right? I plunked them down in Cuba for four or five days. I don't say anything. And I guide, walk around, take a look. I'll tell you, (laughs) he could see it in his own eyes. Mm. So you want to live here? Nice climate, all right? Nice beach. You want to live here? He's like this. He goes, who are those guys, Dad? I said, they're the secret police. They're following us because they know who I am. We had two goons on us Mm. all over Havana. You know, they had the big shirts down Mm covering them the guns, I said, yeah, they're going to follow us all around. Are they going to hurt us? (laughs) I said, no. They just want to know what we're doing. All right? And when you live in a socialist or communist nation, that's what you're going to have. People are following you around. And I did that for, I do that for my children. I take Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. All right? Not only to foreign nations, but all over the United States. And I show them where Custer got the arrow and why he did. And then... And if every parent would do that, you know, to some extent, yeah. then we would start to bring the country back to understanding why it's the greatest country in the world. Because we don't understand why it is now. Alexandria, as much as I admire her work ethic, she kicked at Crowley's butt, and mm-hmm. he was an old-time corrupt Paul, and I was happy. Yeah. But she doesn't know You're right... She doesn't know anything. Can you imagine her up against me... I'd love to see it. I think it would be a delightful That'd debate. 30 I'll, seconds. I'll pay
1: big money <laughs> to show up for that one. I, want the I don't want to be lines.
7: arrogant or supercilious, because I went to Boston u too. I have a broadcast journalism degree there. But she doesn't know anything. But is she challenged by the press? No, no, she's not. She's a star. Cover a time. Bill, it's always great
1: visiting right, you. Governor. I can't wait to see the new book on the United States of Trump coming out in September. Yep. I'm sure people can start pre-ordering it pretty soon. Pre-order shortly.
7: it anywhere. And uh, no, it's not a pro-Trump. It's not an anti-Trump. It's just history. Anxious to have you back on the show when it comes out. and Let's talk about All it. All right, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Great to see it. you, Bill. Thank you.
1: Be sure to visit BillOReilly.com for Bill's daily news analysis, insight, and a lot more. And you can also pre-order his upcoming book, The United States of Trump, on Amazon, or you can get it at BillOReilly.com. Now, Keith, I know you've got something coming up that's going to make some real history. i want you you tell the folks at home about it?
0: I would love to. Next, author Lee Strobel talks the truth of Easter and country's Josh Turner sings... Right here on Huckabee.
1: My next guest's investigation into the facts of Jesus' life turned him from an atheist into a Christian. It also inspired the hit book and film, The Case for Christ. Since Easter is upon us, we're gonna talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Please welcome the author of The Case for Easter, Lee Strobel. Lee, welcome.
6: Thank you, Governor. so great to be with you.
1: Thank you. You have done the world a great service by writing a series of books, The Case for Christianity, and uh, your latest book, The Case for Miracles, and then this beautiful book, a very simple, easy book on The Case for Easter. You were an atheist. Right. And your wife became a believer. Right. And you said, I'm going to prove that that's just a bunch of nonsense. I thought I could rescue her from this cult if I could just (laughs) disprove the resurrection. So you went out to prove that there
6: wasn't any basis for faith. Well, you know, I've been a journalist at the Chicago Tribune for a number of years. and I've seen a lot of dead bodies, but none of them came back to life. (laughs) So I thought, thought, okay, give me a weekend. I can disprove the resurrection. Well, as I say, almost two years later, what I learned is that uh, four facts that really blew me away. Number one, the execution of Jesus, that he was Mm. dead. Even the peer-reviewed scientific Journal of the American Medical Association uh, carried a, an authoritative article that concluded by saying, uh, clearly, based on the historical and medical evidence, Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Mm. So um, cl- even the atheist historian, Gerd Ludeman, says it's historically indisputable that Jesus was dead. Wow. Secondly, I found out that we have reports of the resurrection, including named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses, that has been dated back by scholars to within months of the Mm. death of Jesus within months then third the empty tomb well I found out (laughs) even the opponents of Jesus admitted the tomb was empty they conceded it was empty they just tried to explain how it got empty by saying the disciples stole the body and then eyewitnesses most of what we know from ancient history we know from one or two sources and yet, for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they met the risen Christ. That is a avalanche
1: of historical data. In the case for Easter, what do you feel like is the most important lesson for those who, mm. who are approaching Easter And are are looking to it and saying, is this just another Christian observance? Because I mean, churches will be packed on Easter Sunday like never before, even more than uh, during Christmas. So what's the hope, the message that you're trying to make sure we don't miss?
6: I think a couple of things. Number one, uh, without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. And Mm -hmm. frankly, there's no hope for us as humankind. But the other thing on a very practical level is this. If God can take... The worst thing that could ever happen in the history of the universe, which is the death of the Son of God on a cross, hmm. and turn it into the best thing that's ever happened in the universe, which is the opening of heaven to all who follow him, then why can't he take our problems and our trials and tribulations and draw good out of those as he promises to do in Scripture?
1: When we're talking about what you've done with your career, which has been remarkable, and you've had such an influence. Mm. Have there been people that have come up to you and just wanted to get in an argument and debate you? Oh, sure. What is the typical means by which they approach you and and how do they try to disprove what you've said?
6: Yeah, you know, they'll raise something they saw on the internet. Like they'll say, oh, you know, the reason the tomb was empty is because the body was never in the tomb. Didn't you know that (laughs) they, they threw the bodies of crucifixion victims to the dogs? And, and, you know, so they read that in the Internet. And then you say, well, wait, you know, that's interesting. Uh-huh. And sometimes that happened. However, we have found the buried remains of crucifixion victims who still have the spike through their heel and a piece of the olive wood from the cross attached. So we know that some crucifixions were vi- uh, victims were buried. We know from the earliest account that goes right back within months of the death of Jesus that he was buried. Um, and um, uh, so you know, I think the evidence is on my side, not on your side. And when I say something like that, if they just pop up with another question or another objection, then you know they're not really pursuing truth. But if they say, okay, well, that's interesting. What else can we talk about? Uh, Maybe
1: there's answers to some of the other things I've seen on the internet. This is a a perfect weekend for this book, The Case for Easter and its study guide. They're available at amazon.com, other top booksellers. And you can also learn a lot more about Lee Strobel and all of his books and speaking engagements at leestrobel.com. Follow him on Twitter, at Lee Strobel. Now, Keith is going to make a case to you for sticking around through the break. Keith, take it away.
0: Oh, I am so excited. Coming up, country star Josh Turner performs. Huckabee's back in 60 seconds.
1: Sold and over one and a half billion music streams say that our next guest is a gifted artist. His latest recording is called I Serve a Savior, and it's in stores right now. Would you please make welcome my good friend, Josh Turner. Josh, welcome. (laughs) Good to have you here. Good to be here. What a career. All these nominations for Grammys and and various uh, accolades, I mean, more than a billion songs streamed. And yet you put out a gospel album. And a lot of people probably would have said, Josh, that may not be good for your career as a country artist. <laughs> were, were you in any way concerned that people would peg you some way if you did a gospel album?
8: Uh, well, early on in my career, you know, my, my second official single was uh, a song called Long Black Train yeah. that, that became my signature song. And it was my first hit. It's just, you know, it had all these things attached to it but it was this old fashioned, old timey kind of gospel song. And from the, the minute that came out, I was immediately pigeonholed as that type of artist. And so I, uh, my team and I wanted to go 180 degrees from that f- with the next single um, to try to basically establish the fact that I'm not just that one dimensional type artist. And uh, so we came out with a song called Your Man that ended up being my very first number one. and. Uh, still one of my most requested hits today.
1: you got some great songs on this, one of which I especially find fascinating because it's called The River of Happiness. And the uh, the writer of that song happens <laughs> to be your wife, Jennifer.
8: Yeah, my wife and, and my oldest son, Hampton, wrote that song, I guess, about four years ago. So he was actually eight yeah. when he wrote it. Eight years old. Yeah, he, he was the one that came up with the idea. He was noodling around on his mandolin one day and Jennifer asked him, hey, what's that work you're working on? And he said, oh, it's just something I made up. And so she started explaining to him, like, that's how you write songs. You, you know, you, when you're inspired, something comes to your mind, you start playing it, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, she was like, what are you seeing when you, when you play that, that music? And she, he said, you know, I, I see a river. She said, okay, what kind of river? So she just kind of, literally just kind of walked him through the process. And, you know, end of the, Story is it's ended up on a, a record and a DVD and that's all pretty that, cool so. when an eight-year-old writes a
1: song and it's mm-hmm. uh you know on a on a major uh, label. I, I, I got to ask you this: Will he get commission from some of the sales and royalties? From
8: I mean, yes. Okay. Te- technically, yes. Uh, I was going to recommend some lawyers if you said no. It, I, it's, it's coming through me, but yeah, yeah. He's, he's getting <laughs> yeah. So
1: you've had to also. Um, some great moments that you and I have shared together, going to Israel, yep. going to uh, to Athens and many places in the Middle East. Did that trip to Israel have an impact on you, seeing the land of Jesus and experiencing it firsthand?
8: I think the first time I felt really emotional over there was when I was in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm. just tr- tr- you know trying to f- think of how Jesus felt in the Garden that night and what was Around the corner and what was coming, and just the the weight on his shoulders. I I don't even know if you noticed it, but I passed by you on the way out uh, of the garden, and I was just I was trying to to hide my emotion, but I was I was bawling (laughs) because it was a pretty heavy moment.
1: There's so many of them. People are gonna have some heavy moments when they get the DVD and they see the performance with Bill Gaither, or just listen to the tracks. They're powerful, and uh, you know, I think the song you're gonna do for us tonight is one, an old Hank Williams song. Beautiful, beautiful song. And uh, Josh, we're just thrilled to have you here. Good to be here. Love you, thank God for you, and uh, so very delighted to welcome you to our show. (laughs) Well, as Josh gets ready to sing for us, Keith, why don't you tell the folks at home, how they can get their copy of Josh's brand new album I Serve a Savior
0: I would love to to get Josh Turner's I Serve a Savior on vinyl, CD and DVD go to joshturner.com or you can download your copy today online and now here to sing I Saw the Light is Josh Turner I
4: wondered so a a life filled with sin.